set. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I love you. I love you. I love you. Break it down like this. Welcome to Parenting with Patricia. Twice monthly conversations, insight, and advice on raising happy, resilient children. Your host, Patricia Pearson, LCSW. If you have a problem, question, or comment that you would like Patricia to address on the show, email parentingwithpatricia at gmail.com. Welcome to Parenting with Patricia. This is episode number four, and I'm your host, Patricia Pearson. Now, do you have a pile of unread parenting books stacked in your house somewhere? Or sitting in your Amazon cart? Maybe you haven't even had time to order them yet. There is so much information on parenting out there, but as moms and dads, we just don't have the time. But you do have time for a podcast. Whether you have 10 minutes or an hour, be sure to subscribe to Parenting with Patricia and join me bi-weekly to listen and learn while you travel to work, clean house, cook dinner, or wait to pick up your children from their activities. In today's show, we're going to talk about your child and depression. Can a child really be depressed? Is that even possible? And what does depression look like in a child and how is it different than in an adult? I'm going to be traveling to a high school in Northern Virginia and talking with Mark D'Angelo, a school social worker. Mark and I are going to be talking about teens and self-harm. Is this really a problem? What is self-harm? And how concerned should parents be? Later in the show, as always, I'll be answering emails and hearing from parents with their questions and concerns about their children. And remember, if you have any parenting questions, you can email me at parentingwithpatricia at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Children and depression. Most people think of depression as an adult illness. You know, we used to believe a long time ago that children couldn't even have depression. But now it's known that children and adolescents can develop depression. And unfortunately, many children with depression go untreated because adults don't recognize that they're even depressed. So I think this is a really, really important topic for parents to learn about childhood depression so they can recognize it early and intervene. Now, sometimes parents don't believe that it's possible for kids to be depressed. We think, what do they have to be depressed about? They don't have to pay bills. They don't have any of the stresses that adults have. But kids do have things that they're stressed about. And even children with relatively stress-free lives still can experience depression. Now, depression in children looks different than it does in adults. As adults, we think of a depression as being sad, However, in children, depression doesn't always look sad. It looks more irritable and angry. And I think we're not going to hear about their feelings. We're going to see changes in their behavior. Changes such as your child might be more defiant. You might see a decline in their grades at school. There might be some social withdrawal, not wanting to hang out with friends as much. You might see that they're more sensitive to rejection than they used to be. Another thing to look out for is changes in appetite. Are they eating more? Are they eating less? Or changes in sleep? Are they having trouble sleeping? Are they sleeping more? 
You might see difficulty concentrating, um, low energy, are they tired all the time? Also, a child with depression will have physical complaints, talking about headaches and stomach aches. They might have trouble concentrating or thinking. You know, often we don't know how our child is feeling, but we see behaviors, but they don't express the feeling behind the behavior. And this is because, well, for younger children, they lack the language skills often to verbalize what they're feeling is, what their mood is. They may not be able to describe how they feel. And it's important to look closer at their behaviors and try to identify the feelings that are behind the behaviors. Because remember, every behavior that our child does is telling us something. And I think for older children, they have a better understanding of what depression means. And sometimes there's stigma around being depressed and guilt And often they feel embarrassed, and it's hard for them to express their feelings. They want to keep it hidden. So I think for parents, it's best not to ask your child a lot of questions. Instead, I would recommend really looking at the changes in behavior that you see. Keep a track of the behaviors and the moods that you see in your child, and then you can recognize these changes, and if they're significant, then you'll know whether to seek professional help. Now, I know this can be very upsetting to think that your child would be depressed. You know, as a parent, we feel terrible if our child is sick or if they have anxiety, but to think that our child has depression is really hard to face. I know a lot of the families that I see will come in saying that their child has depression because that's a little bit easier. I mean, they say that their child has anxiety, because that's a little bit easier to to handle than to face that their child is depression. But I think it's really important to be honest with yourself. And if you see some of these behaviors in your child, don't be in denial. It's okay and get help. You know, sometimes parents, when they think of depression, they fear that the treatment is going to be a lot of strong medications for their child. And medication is helpful sometimes, but it's not always needed to treat depression. Therapy is a great option for children, and children as young as three years old can see a play therapist. So if you suspect your child is depressed, the pediatrician is the good place to start. Schedule an appointment with your physician and talk about your concerns. Tell them about the behaviors that you're seeing. And the pediatrician can rule out any physical health issues that may be contributing to these symptoms. Then as always, I encourage parents to educate yourself, do some research, and see what treatment options are best for your child. But here's what's most important. Listen to your child and don't ignore them. Never make them feel like they're not trying hard enough. Don't make comments like, just stop acting this way. Just be positive. You can choose how you feel. Don't do this. You know, I work with children and teens all the time, and they actually feel guilty about their depression. They feel like they're letting their parents down. They hear the message from their parents that they need to try harder, that they need to just fix it. And they are in such pain. And trust me, if they could just fix it, they would. So break the stigma about mental health. 
You never want your child to feel like they're doing something wrong by feeling the way that they feel. You know, if our child had the flu and they had a high fever and they were laying in bed, we wouldn't say, just get out of bed, try harder, go to school. Well, mental and emotional health is just as important as our physical health. And our children need us to understand this and they need our support. Today, I'm visiting a high school in Woodbridge, Virginia. I just love coming into the school buildings. The moment I walk in the front door, I have such a good feeling. I'm in the office with Mark D'Angelo now, and Mark is a school social worker and works with lots of teens and their families. He's extremely knowledgeable in fields to include sex trafficking, self-injury, and suicide prevention. He gives a lot of presentations to parents and professionals, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Mark. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about self-harm and self-injury. How common is this problem? And as a social worker, do you see teens in the school self-harming? Yes. No, it is very common. Um, I've been in the high school for 12 years now, and just during that time I've seen a lot of variations of self-injury. It seems like it starts in middle school. Um, Oftentimes when I'm asking students they can remember the last time they were happy or something that they can remember um, that changed for them they often pinpoint sixth grade seventh grade often bullying um, and just not knowing how to cope with things so self-injury is a negative or a maladaptive coping strategy Um, and because of that they tend to turn to that versus actually facing whatever it is that they're struggling with and for various reasons. And, um, and it seems to start there, and by ninth grade, it sort of becomes a part of a lot of how students cope, and we try and work really closely with parents and the student to find new ways to you know, kind of step down that process to eventually remove um, the self-injury altogether. But it, I would say it's very common, uh, especially among the younger grades like ninth grade, 10th grade, coming in from middle school. Interesting. Now, do you think that it's more girls or boys, or do you see a difference? Um, no, it's skewed because most of the time it's girls that come forward to talk to me about problems they're having, whereas guys tend to hold that in so or not come forward to, to kind of talk about things. So from that perspective, I see a lot more girls cutting than, than guys, but I have known guys to cut. Um, and so, and uh, there were guys that I've known that were burning, um, doing other forms of self-injury. So taking, um, especially ones that, you know, dress in what would be determined as emo or goth or, you know, wearing the makeup and the straightening hair, they would take their straightening irons to burn themselves. Um, that's interesting because I think a lot of times when parents think of self-harm, they think of cutting, right. you know, just cutting on the arms. But it sounds like there's a lot more to self-injury than just cutting. There is. Um, so there were, I haven't seen this as much, but I did see this at one time. There was a student that was um, using needle and thread to kind of sew into them. Um, there's burning, there's cutting, um, there's a lot of variations, um, but it all sort of means the same thing. There. You know, self-injury is very similar to um, 
the purpose behind it, such as like having an eating disorder or um, you know, using drugs or being very promiscuous, you know, all these at-risk behaviors usually masking a bigger problem mm-hmm. um, or trying to control something. Is, you know, but using self-injury for control is one way that people will do that, but there's a lot of different reasons why people self-injure. You know, I think when we think of self-injuring, there's such a large range. I mean, what exactly is it? Is it a suicide attempt? Or sometimes people will call self-harm just scratches, and some parents will say, well, they just scratch themselves. Um, right. I mean, there shouldn't be seen as the deeper the cut or the deeper the injury, the severity of the problem, because it's, it's all sort of the same. There's a problem. Um, the severity of the cutting could lead to infection and things like that. So it should be a concern based on medical reasons, you know, or if the child's needing stitches or something like that. But, um, yeah, if they're scratching or um, picking scabs and things that never heal because they're constantly doing that, or um, it's all sort of a, a cry for help in one way or another, or that they're trying to mask a bigger problem that they're struggling with that they don't either have the words to use or feel like no one's listening or um, can't find their way out of problem solving. Um, How is it different than than a suicide attempt? Right. So often the self-injury is a coping strategy. They're doing it to either feel pain because they feel numb most of the time or they're doing it to shock their system, or they're doing it because they're trying to, they have emotional pain and they want to feel physical pain to get it released. So that's sort of the, a lot of the reasons why it could happen. Um, similar to, one student told me they cut because they know that they won't severely hurt themselves. So they compared it to when they were younger and they would fall off their bike and they'd get some scratches or some blood, um, some scrapes, and they knew, okay, I'm going to heal from this. I haven't broken any bones, and so I'll, I'll be okay. Um, but I still want to feel pain. Um, so that's some things behind self-injury, whereas a suicide attempt is often very different. Um, you know, they've given up. There's, they can't see any positive future. And oftentimes someone that self-injures will get to a point where the self-injury is not working anymore and then they will have a suicide attempt and the suicide attempt will be of a different means most of the time if they're cutting they'll like for girls they'll be cutting it's not working it's not working they'll take a bunch of pills and that'll be the suicide attempt but the cutting was a coping strategy so they won't use that as a form of suicide but there are some students that I've worked with doing risk assessments that will have had a suicide attempt or have planned out a suicide attempt that they will use to cut their veins as their plan. But those are kids that do not self-injure. Okay. So it sounds like it's kind of different. Right. It's a, you know, they'll use a different means. I love your image of the student who said they cut them, you know, they would fall when they were a child and that was a, a, a wound that they could heal and mm-hmm. watch, you know, get better and heal. And I guess... Their, their physical pain they can watch heal, but their emotional pain is, is so deep that it doesn't. Right. And I've known some that have self-injured because they, they're they angry with themselves and they want to punish themselves for something. Like, I can't believe I'm so stupid for doing that. And then for whatever that was, and then they would 
cut themselves as a form of discipline. Um, and, you know, but again, it's all this coping. It's a misplaced kind of coping strategy. Right. I think that's what parents really ask when they hear about this. This can't be true, people cutting themselves. Why would someone do that? Hmm. You know, why? It doesn't make sense. And I think some people just are in denial of it because they don't understand why. Why would a kid do this? Right. And one thing, and I have this in the presentation, is it's similar to when, uh, like us as adults, if we get upset, so we're, our kids are being loud, the volume in the house is just overwhelming, and, you know, one's demanding you know, mommy, mommy, your daddy, daddy, do this, do this, and then someone else is like, do this, do that, and then we're trying to get dinner on the table, and everything's going all crazy, and like, it's just, the volume's too much, and you can't take it, and you can, as adults, you know, we can feel ourselves like, it's, it's coming, I'm getting angrier, I'm getting angrier, at some point, I'm just going to start yelling, and, or I'm going to, you know, slam the table with my hand to kind of stop everything from happening, it's, it's that sense in, inside a child's mind, so, you know, a kid, a teenager, starts off okay you know there's maybe parents are fighting at home or there's trouble or there's there's a conflict going on in, ho- in the house between siblings or parents and it's escalating the child and then they maybe get some f's on a test and so now something at school's bothering them and then maybe somebody said a rumor or they read something about it and it's just building and building and building and it gets to a point where it seems like every aspect of their life has a conflict or a difficulty and they can't find their way out of it and so and then that leads to this, okay, i gotta, I got to slam my hand on the desk somehow. How am I going to make this stop? And then, you know, some people go to drugs. Some people go to alcohol. Some people will control their bowel movements. Some people will control, um, you know, by food. And some people will cut just to make everything stop, you know, for a moment. Right. That makes sense. Now, what would you say to the parent that says, I think they're just doing this for attention and sort of blows it off? Well, yeah, we, we hear that a lot. And... And I say, yes, they are trying to get attention. <laughs> um, there are kids that will say at times, like, you know, especially younger kids, um, you know, if I don't get this toy, then I'm just going to kill myself because they know that these buzzwords are being used and there are certain actions that need to take place. So, I mean, that's kind of a, you need to gauge that. But at a teenage level, it's very rare that they're going to use that that language. They know that what's going to happen, and they're going to, re, you know, parents are going to react. Um, so it's very rare that they're going to, it's a, it's a pure attention-seeking, I want to get my way, manipulative act. Mm-hmm. It's very often a cry for help. Um, and if parents hadn't been aware of it, and they may have been going on for a while, but then all of a sudden it gets revealed, and then parents may think, oh, it, this is just happening now, but it may actually have been going on for a year, quietly in their room at night. They may wake up in the middle of the night or have a hard time actually falling asleep or being in their room doing this without many people knowing. So they're doing it for attention, and like you said, yeah, they're doing it for attention because sometimes they need that attention. Right. It's a need. And it may be... A, you know, a, a cry, you know, a wolf, you know, a cry a wolf kind of thing, but, um, but it, but see it for what it really is. If it actually is an attention-seeking thing, and what is it they're actually wanting? What is it the actual problem is? And, and honestly, having a conversation with them to really get that, and being, you know, parents being vulnerable, being, you know, is it something? But in, in a way of not putting guilt out there, but is it, you know, is there something that, you know there's a problem 
with the parents? Is that is that something that's affecting you, or is it something that's going on at home, or is it a loss that you you know a grandparent that passed away, or or a dog that passed away, or you know it could be anything, but the kids may not have the the language or the ability at that moment to verbalize what it is, right. but just creating a safe environment without blame will be able to get that out. That's why it's so hard when parents say to kids, why? Why would you do this? You know, right. what are you doing? And I think sometimes they really don't know the answer. Yeah, or they can't They can't pull verbalize it. it. They can't, can't pull it, it out yet. Right. Yeah. They know it so deeply inside. Yeah. So we know that, that kids are doing this. Teenagers are doing this and younger kids are doing this. What can parents look for? Because I think a lot of times we're in denial that this can't be happening. And so we just think that it's other kids out there, not ours. Right. What warning signs, what should we look for? Um... Yeah, and when as I was learning about this, as I started working in the high school, um, I actually had informant kids telling me, like, you know, what, it, how are they hiding it from their parents, basically, and and how resourceful are they, you know, in terms of finding things to use, and so warning signs would be if certainly if they're covering their arms, but um, a lot of times kids know that people are going to look for their arms, so they're cutting on their legs and on you know where shorts would cover. You know, so upper thighs kind of area um, in between their toes. Um, but often it's their arms. So one thing you could be looking for is if, um, if a kid wants to get a tattoo, because that's fairly common now that, you know, you see tattoos on high school students, and if they want to get a tattoo, that could be covering something up. But oftentimes kids use that as a way of healing, like after the fact. I mean, they no longer are cutting. They actually will get a tattoo of like a flower or something to cover up the, the marks. Um, a lot of times if they're wearing a lot of bracelets on their arm, um, just the shadow and wearing a bunch of bracelets uh, could cover up marks or camouflage them. Um, there's a lot of hoodies that have thumb holes in them because it's a skater look. And parents, if you're, you know, should be aware that if they have the, their thumb in the thumb holes, then that's keeping the sleeves down so that sleeves don't roll up and reveal that they're cutting. Um, or they'll make their own thumb holes and just say it's part of a look. Um, certainly wearing long sleeves and, and lots of, you know, cover-up during days that it's maybe not, you know, wearing lots of hoodies and when it's not necessarily cold enough to wear a, a hoodie. Um, any way that being covering up their arms or their legs in a sense that seems atypical. Uh, certainly if there's been changes in behavior, um, dropping out of sports, loss of friends, um, changes in hairstyle, changes in music, just significant changes, grades dropping, um, attendance issues, um, new friends that seem cool because they skipped class and stuff like that. So if there's a bunch of those risk factors happening, those would be signs to look for because they would, they're very similar warning signs to depression and anxiety. And right. If you see signs of depression and anxiety in your children, do you think it's something that a parent should do is to, to talk about cutting and to kind of bring it up before the child brings it up and, and ask them, is that something you ever think about? Yeah, I would. Um, it's the same thing we teach about suicide prevention. You know, we... You know, just because you mentioned suicide doesn't plant the seed in the child's mind of thinking, oh, I never thought about that before. Maybe that's something I should consider. It's, that's, a, that's a myth. Um, kids are, you know, they're thinking about suicide, it's already there. And if they're not thinking about suicide, then they're not going to 
And that's kind of the way it is with self-injury. Correct. So if, you know, is that something you're doing? And and see here what the reaction is. If they look down, then they probably are. You know, Mm -hmm. same, you know, body language, you know, 101 about, you know, learning how a student, someone's lying or not. Um, But yeah, I would be up front. But I, and I do that with students here. Um, But I wait, obviously, until I have a rapport. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that rapport can be built in the first time I meet with them, just if I could tell the kid is overwhelmed, anxious, teachers come to me and said the student is overwhelmed and anxious, um, you know, maybe you can talk with them and then I can start probing. And then I, what I typically say is, how do you cope with stress? And hear what they say um, and sort of gauge my conversation based on what they say. And then if they are beating around the bush, then I eventually just come out and say, okay, do you, have you ever cut, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I know with the teens that I work with in therapy a lot of times, and I'm not their parents, so I think that's different, mm-hmm. when they're talking about their, their sadness and stuff. And after I've built that rapport, I'll just come out and say sometimes, have you ever thought about cutting? Is that something that you're doing? And I think, and because I'm not their parent, they almost feel relieved. Oh, okay, let me tell you. Let me show right. you I do. And um, yeah. they almost want to be able to tell it. Yeah, and find a safe place that they can reveal that in. Right. Um, So when a parent finds out that their child is cutting, they see the marks um, or the burns or whatever way they're doing it, and I'm sure it's got to be a very emotional, painful experience, Mm -hmm. Um, all kinds of emotions. You might cry. You might feel angry. What should parents do when they notice this, when they recognize that it's happening to their child? Um, Yeah, I I mean, and this is much easier said than done, but it's, you know, reminding yourself that they're in emotional pain. Um, and if you, you yell at them, like, why would you do this? Then you're adding more guilt and more problems. If you, you know, is this because of the music or the video games or this or this or this? I'm just going to take it all away. If you remove things to some degree, like music or coping strategies that aren't destructive, then, like, or take their phone away, then that can spiral them out of control as well. Because for kids now, their phone is their life, you know, they're their lifeline to connecting with other kids. Um, so the big thing would be not to yell, not to blame, not yell, say, how could you, what's wrong with you, any of those types of things. But it's, you know, you know obviously you're, you know, recognizing it, talking about it, showing concern, showing, you know, that you're scared and that, you know, that you're their child and just reminding them that you love them um, and talk about it from that perspective. Like, you know, obviously you're in a lot of pain. You know, this is something I would like you to come talk to me about. You know, I don't know, I don't know all the answers. I don't know what to say or not to say. You know, being vulnerable on that level will allow the kid to open up more because they're, they're not going to think, okay, I'm just going to get in trouble and my parents are yelling and they don't understand. And the kids are in such a place where it's either depression, anxiety, um, overwhelm, just, and just the rise of like social anxiety is, is skyrocketing as well. So it's just when there's so much going on in their headspace and they can't verbalize it, when a parent comes down on them and you know, yells at them for what they're doing, it will create either more guilt, more sadness. 
and they'll be looking at everything from their self about how bad they are. So when an external source yells at them and says how bad you know how bad they are essentially, it validates their own misperception. And it will get them into a place where they'll say, see, in their head, they'll say, see, even my parents don't love me. See, even my parents think there's something wrong with me. So there must be something wrong with me. And that's why I keep doing this. And that it's just going to feed the cycle. So the way to break that is to be as calm as possible and that in that situation. And, and tell them, I mean, you can cry, I mean, you can let them know, like, hey, you know, this affects me, you know, parents have said that, you know, you're my heart outside of my body, and when I see you do this, this hurts me, you know, using these I statements, we're in a school, we are in a school, <laughs> I told you we were in a school, and we are, so reminding them, and coming from a perspective of love, and wanting to care for them, would be the way to approach it, and being vulnerable and letting your kids know that, hey, you are approachable. It will go much further. Even if they sit there and say nothing, everything's fine, and give you attitude, if you leave, they will come back and say, well, my parents, in their own head, they'll say, my parents didn't yell at me. My parents told me that they loved me. And those things will sink in, even if they put up the front that says that they didn't. Because... Well, a lot of times I get kids coming in here saying, you know, my parents don't love me. You know, I've never heard my parents say that. Um, you know, why is it that I'm unlovable or parents are separated and one parent is removed? You know, why does that parent not want to see me? So they leave that in, the, in their own head and then they fill in the gaps with whatever negativity that they've got in there by just keeping that negative perspective so if a parent comes in and talks from a love perspective and reminds them how much they love them and will care for them will get them help I don't have all the answers but I'm going to support whatever we need to do to get you through this then they can be like okay I can let go of the reins my mom or my dad have taken over and I'm going to you know, work this program even if there's attitude when you leave as long as you haven't provided them the validation with anger, it'll sink in. And the next time they may come back to you a day later and say, okay, um, I am struggling with this. And they'll test the waters. And if they come back to you, then you know you, you're validated in how you approached it. And they're going to come to you and test the waters. And see if you're, you mean what you say. Right. I think it's important, too, for parents to really recognize their feelings because a lot of times when they see their child cutting, they don't want to, but the first thing they think of is, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? Right. I'm a terrible parent. And they have all this guilt, and then it just turns into um, sort of a, a yelling or blaming or getting upset right. when really their feelings are guilt from what they've done. And, and it's not necessarily anything they've right. done. And so so when they see this, not to go immediately there, that right. they're a bad parent, what have I done? Right. But that it could be something very different. Yeah. And and parents argue. You know, there's, there's arguments in the house, but a kid may not understand. All they know is that at nighttime, mom and dad, their voices get louder. You know, so, the, you know, and it might not be that the parents are separating or that they're really angry at each other, but they're, you know, there could be a stressful time. But a, a kid going through their own stressful time and then hearing other stressful times that, you know, his parents were human and 
you know, we have stressful times as well, and they may not understand it. So they fill in the gaps with their own lens. And um, so, so, yeah, just coming at it almost in the sense of if your child broke their bone, they were on, you know, riding a motorbike or a regular bike or a little one was on a playground and they dropped from the monkey bars and they broke their arm or something, you, parents know how to react to that. You know, we kick in like, oh my gosh, we scoop them up, we parry them, we take them to the hospital, we're going to get them fixed to get a cast, you know, the, the whole right. bit. We right. know how to handle that. It's the same thing. You see a child cutting, picture it as they just fell off that bike and just broke their arm or they fell off the, you know, the playground set or something happened and they physically got injured. They need help and they don't know how to get it. So you scoop them up, you let them know that it's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right, we're going to take care of this. Come at it from that perspective. I like that. Scoop them up, let them know you love them. That's mm-hmm. most important in almost every situation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Mark, for letting <laughs> me be in a school today. I've sure. had such a great time talking with you, and I think that these things are going to be very helpful to parents, so I appreciate it. Sure. And there are a lot of good research uh, or books out there as well. Oh, great. Um, that uh, one is... Um, called When Your Child is Cutting. Uh, it's by Mary McVie Noble. And it's a really parent-friendly book. And it, it's not something you need to read straight through. You can just quick go to it in one chapter, and it's got stuff in there. And uh, it's really broken down, really easy to, to learn uh, from. Um, uh, help, there's another one called Helping Teens Who Cut um, by Michael Hollander. And a really... <laughs> A really good one um, that helps kind of get in the mindset is called A Bright Red Scream, and that's by Myer- uh, Miley Strong. And that really kind of gives case studies and gets into the mindset of the teenager about why they may be doing this. So those three books are really good. Thank you. I always love it when people share books because parents need to educate themselves and always be on top of what's going on and research and research and research. Thank you so much sure. again, Mark. Thank you. Let's hear from you. Now is the time in the show when I look at my emails from parents and I answer their parenting questions or concerns. And remember, if you have a parenting question, you can email me at parentingwithpatricia at gmail.com. Today's email comes from Heartbroken Mom. She writes, Dear Patricia, My son just turned 11, and I've always been very proud of the fact that he and I have a close relationship. And I was shocked the other night when I was on his laptop and noticed that he'd been looking at porn on the internet. Not just once, but multiple times. I confronted him about it, and first he lied and tried to blame it on a friend. But after a lot of talk, he finally admitted that it was him. Now, I immediately took away his laptop and discussed much stricter rules about the use of the Internet. He's not allowed to have his friends over this weekend like we had previously planned. I've been researching ways to make the Internet safer, but I'm afraid he's still going to find a way to find these disturbing websites. How can I teach him that this is just not acceptable? Thank you for sharing this with our listeners. I think it's important and relevant for all parents. You know, kids on the internet are going to be curious about pornography, 
and they have easy access to it. Even with our best efforts, kids find ways to find things on the internet. First, let me say, I know it's very alarming when we find that our child has been looking at porn. Yet it's important to remember that curiosity about sex is normal. Unfortunately, what isn't normal is sex that we see in pornography. We don't see sex between a loving couple. What we see is rape fantasies, disgrading images, and often very young, young girls. You know, back in the day, we used to catch kids in the backyard looking at a Playboy magazine. And this was the first nude image that a young teen would see. But porn today on the internet has become more disturbing, and it's a more disturbing introduction to sex for our children. As a parent, it is understandable that you feel shocked and disappointed. However, it's very important that you respond to your son with concern and empathy rather than anger. You want your reaction to be one that will leave the door open to ongoing conversations. If you're angry, your son's going to be less likely to listen and less likely to talk. It's not about taking things away like his computer or time with his friends. It's not about punishment. It's about teaching. Now is a good time for some education for your son. It's important to explain the reasons why we don't want him looking at porn on the internet. Porn is not reality. It's a performance, a show. And we don't want our teens growing up believing that porn is what sex between two adults really looks like. We want our children to view sex as something good and healthy. And I know this can be a conversation for some parents that's difficult. But I think it's really important to let our children know that one day we want them to have sex when they're adults and we want them to have fun. Also, your son most likely feels some shame and it's really important to reduce the shame. This doesn't mean saying that looking at porn is okay, but it does mean letting him know that he's not bad, he's not dirty. It's okay to be curious about sex. And it's okay to be aroused by looking at sexual images. But your son needs to know that his sexual feelings are not bad, but they need to be expressed in another way. Takeaways from today's show. Even though we may not think children have anything to be depressed about, children can be depressed even when they seem to have stress-free lives. Also, depression, remember, looks different in children than it does in adults. It looks more like anger and irritability. Children can't always express their feelings, so pay attention to their behaviors. They are always telling us something with their behavior. Self-injury is a behavior that's very common and more common than we might think. Teens have told me that they cut themselves to distract themselves from their intense emotions. They say the physical pain actually feels better than the emotional pain. One teen told me that they like to watch their cut heal and scab over. They said the physical wound heals and their emotional wound seems to never heal. Though cutting and other self-harming behaviors can be dangerous, remember they're not usually related to suicidal thoughts or suicidal attempts. So what if you discover your teen is self-harming? What should you do? 
First, keep your emotions in check. The worst thing you can do is yell or criticize. Make sure you tell them that you love them no matter what. Help your child get out the neosporin and be a part of the healing. Self-harm is a complicated emotional and behavioral issue. If you're concerned about your child, please go and call for professional help and treat to prevent the problem. Parents, thank you for listening and thank you for caring about your child. You know, I started this podcast because I can't think of anything more important than parenting. It is a podcast for you and I want to meet your needs. So please email me at parentingwithpatricia at gmail.com with your ideas and thoughts for future episodes. You can also message me on my Facebook page at Patricia Pearson LCSW and I'd love to hear from you. Also, remember to click subscribe to join us bi-weekly on discussions about parenting and issues that you want to know. Now, you may not know this, but when you subscribe, rate me, or leave a comment, it helps other parents find the podcast, and I certainly appreciate it. Until next time, remember, parents are important. You are important.